0: what happened essentially was that I feared that the Rajneesh might buy it or somebody else. Cause 5,000 acres and 12 miles of a uh, river, almost 24 miles of river bank was kind of unbelievable, especially for the river that I th- think is the best one in the United States. So I immediately uh, called up the Northwest Steelheaders a guy named Chuck Ross, who's executive director. And I said, Chuck, can you get a, uh, meeting with uh, governor atia
1: that was frank amato describing how he played a key role in protecting the lower deschutes river back in the 1970s and 80s this is the wet fly swing fly fishing show episode 113 Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Are you interested in heading out on an amazing Alaska trip? Go to wetflyswing.com to get more details on the upcoming fly fishing trip this summer. In today's episode, I talk with Frank Amato, the man behind Salmon, Trout, Steelheader Magazine, and the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, and who has published over 300 books through Amato Publishing. Frank talks about the beginning of STS back in 1967, the blue jet sled he has had for just about as long, and how he saved my butt on the Deschutes River when I was a young lad. Don't miss this one as Frank tells us where he got his name, the Clackamas River Cuckoo, and the best-selling book to date. Since 1977, the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal has long been considered the Angler's Magazine, with original how-tos and technical articles written by the best trout and steelhead anglers in the West. FTJ is committed to sharing exceptionally written essays, fiction, poetry, and in-depth guides to fly fishing destinations. FTJ is one of my go-to magazines, and if you haven't checked it out recently, you can get started by calling 1-800-541-9498 or heading over to the web at ftjangler.com. Com. So, without further ado, here's Frank Amato. How's it going, Frank?
0: Oh, excellent. Yeah, I, I could be going a little bit better when it comes to fish numbers, but uh, particularly steelhead and salmon. Uh huh. But otherwise, it's okay. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. We're kind of going through a little bit of a, well, I guess the, the runs go up and down and I think we're on a little bit of a downslide uh, for sure. But, you know, hope, hopefully that changes. Um, I wanted to get into everything you have going, you know, motto Books and the long list I've known you. It seems like my whole life I've read and and had a connection with with what you have going. I, I'd love to hear, you know, get into that. But first, can you tell us how you first got into fly fishing?
0: Well, I started fly fishing when my parents moved to uh, Milwaukee. There was a little stream close to our home called uh, Kellogg Creek. And at first, uh, in the sixth grade, I think I started using uh, manure worms, stuff that the local uh, oh, farmers would use in their truck farms or, <laughs> or would be in their manure piles. And at a good day, we could maybe get some night crawlers, but... When it got dry and uh, in the summer, and the night crawlers were down, we had to take manure worms, and they stunk. And when you put them on a bait hook, they would break. They were horrible little worms. So our goal in summer would be to take a manure worm, catch a bullhead or sculpin mm-hmm. as we call them now, but we used to call them mud daubers, Catch one, strip the skin, and then uh, use the white meat and then uh, bait fish for trout. Huh. And uh, that worked real well because uh, white meat on a molehead is really tough, and you could have fish for a long time and forget about the manure worm.
1: Nice. I said that was a, So that's at Kellogg Creek. Do you re- ever re- remember seeing any steelhead or salmon in there back in the day?
0: Yeah, Kellogg Creek uh, in the 50s, it had steelhead in the wintertime, had fall... It had cutthroat from about, sea run cutthroat from, they would come in as adults from about November until February. And it also had coho salmon. Mm -hmm. And uh, it had a few other fish species as well, including even warm water species that uh, eventually got up into it. But what killed it was essentially all of the suburban homes that were built. And every time a home would be built, there'd be more silt coming down. And I hated to particularly see that silt in the, uh, in the spring when the steelhead and the salmon were spawning. So now it has remnant fish in it and that's about it.
1: Right. Right. How did you go from, you know, that period of time fishing with the mud doggers and all that stuff to, you know, where you eventually got into thinking about opening up a publishing, um, you know, operation.
0: Well, it was a, it was a big jump. And, at first, uh, you know, the bait fishing ended up becoming fly fishing. Within a year or so, probably by the seventh grade, some of us kids were, would buy a, a few flies from a little sporting goods store in Milwaukee called Dick's Sporting Goods. And we would tie the fly onto our little rods and uh, so all we were using were like big casting rods or steel fly rods, whatever we could get our hands on. And more than anything, we were dapping, just dropping the worm on the water. Well, we started reading as kids in the sixth, seventh, eighth grade about people using flies to cast trout. So we bought a couple of flies. We tie them onto the monofilament later. And then we would dap the flies in the riffles. And we were catching these, uh, essentially resident, uh, or steelhead smolts and also some resident, uh, cutthroat. And, uh, that was all of a huge revelation that a fly, a fly could trick a, a trout into taking it as opposed to night collars, crawfish tails and, and, uh, mites and all that kind of stuff. So once I got into high school, I went to central Catholic and, uh, they had a nice library there, and I remember getting hold of a book called The Old Man in the Sea, and it was written by Ernest Hemingway, and that was such a kind of interesting book about fishing for sharks and all of that off of Cuba that uh, I started looking for more books on fishing and from in the school library, and they had a few books written by Robert K. Brown of British Columbia fishing writer and kind of one of the considered early to be almost the father of fly fishing in the western yeah. world or at least in north america and so i started reading those books and uh all of a sudden i realized that you know these books especially ones on fly fishing for steelhead i had to go to the portland public library so I'd uh, take the bus, go down to Portland Public Library. And all this time, I was in high school, I was working in a grocery store in the junior, my junior and senior years called Kino's. They had a chain of about 20 grocery stores at, at that time in the early 60s, late 50s. I got a job as a box boy, and on my breaks, which were normally for an half an hour or an hour, I was allowed, as other employees were, to take a magazine off the magazine rack in the store as long as we replaced it so we could read it during our lunch hour. And so the mag- only magazines at that time were Field, and Stream, Sports, Field, and Outdoor Life, what we used to call the big three. Mm-hmm. Plus, there was another magazine called Western Outdoors that came out of California. Very rarely they would have an article about the Northwest and that's where I got the idea to start a magazine about the Northwest. The only fishing publication at that time coming from the Northwest was something called Fishing and Hunting News, kind of a weekly newspaper that was uh, interesting, but it uh, didn't really have factual articles of any length. And it was essentially just a black and white newsprint. Yeah. So I thought when I was, by the time I was a senior in high school, I thought, well, if I ever get a chance to um, start a magazine, you know, I kind of like to do that. I like to read. I liked printing. I was familiar with uh, printing presses somewhat. And so I thought, yeah, that would, you know, I'd, I'd like to publish a magazine, Northwest Fishing. So I went on to University of Portland, and uh, I, I, I think that's where your father went, too, if yep. I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I went, yeah, so I went to University of Portland, and I continued working at Keynotes. And uh, I worked towards a, uh, a teaching degree when I got out of uh, college, then I taught a couple of years at Central Catholic. <laughs> By that time, I had well-formulated what kind of a magazine I wanted to start, and I was able to uh, raise a few thousand dollars, my wife, Gail, and I, and a business partner and also a fishing partner named Joseph Torres, and so we scraped together about $5,000, enough to print about one issue of the first issue of the magazine, plus pay for the city thing. first issue of Salmon Steel Latter came out in the summer of nineteen sixty-seven. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it, it, it started kind of with the Bing, and the summer of 67 was a great summer for my wife and I, because... We had our first baby. That oh. would be Nick. He was born in uh, June. The magazine came out in uh, August, the first issue of Sam and Charles Steelheader. And I also bought, or we've also bought our first new car, a 67 Volkswagen, which <laughs> I had for about uh, 13 years. Oh, wow. And uh, it, it, so it, it was a, the summer of 67 was a great summer. And from there, the magazine then continued to uh, kind of uh, slowly grow along.
1: Wow. Wow, that's... Oh, that's awesome to hear that story. This is exactly what I was hoping to to hear from you. You know, when I was talking to Craig in the past episode, we were talking about the fly fishing and tying sure. journal, you know, journal and everything. And it's cool. You said 1967. It's interesting. You mentioned my dad. Well, my older brother um, Chris was born in 1967 of, of October, and that was also their first kid. So it's funny the similarities they had. You guys both well, had, both had your first kid in the same year.
0: Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? That that's, is cool. Well, the, another thing that. Happened actually in 1966 in my second year teaching at Central. Um, my wife and I were able to uh, uh, move close to Kellogg Creek to find a little house that was a tiny little one bedroom house. And by the time we left it, after six years, by 72, we had uh, I think we had the two two of our kids were living in the same bedroom, plus our cat, <laughs> and plus Gail and I. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, as we were able to move out and get a bigger house, but so I, I was still actually able to kind of follow along with Kellogg Creek and see how it was doing, and and uh, then over the years uh, I saw things kind of get sad on it as far as fish were concerned, but but yeah. uh, the, the magazine was wonderful because it gave me the opportunity to travel and to fish from Alaska to British from Alaska to Chile, and essentially okay. from. Oregon to, uh, over into, into Italy and, wow. uh, else, other places.
1: Yeah. What, what was the, so Salmon Trout Steelheader was in 1967, that was the first magazine. And then when, when did, uh, the Fly Fishing and, and Tying Journal, when did that start up?
0: Well, in 1967, of course, I started Salmon Trout Steelheader and by about, about 1970 or 1971, The Federation of Fly Fishermen, which was a national conservation organization, still exists under a different name. The Federation of Fly Fishermen, was their quarterly magazine was being published out of New York. And the national president was a guy named Lou Bell, an attorney up in uh, Everett. And Lou was a subscriber to Salmon Trout Steelheader and liked the work I had been doing on it. So Lou... Asked to have a meeting with me to see if I would consider giving the Federation of Fly Fishermen a proposing a contract to them whereby I would produce the Fly Fisher quarterly magazine for the organization. So that was, like I say, about 1970. So from 1970 to 1970, we said, quarterly issues of the Federation for their maybe five or 10,000 members. And the magazine was edited by a fellow named Steve Raymond, who worked for the Seattle Times in Seattle, and was an excellent writer and also an excellent fly fisherman. And so Steve and I worked together for about five or six years, and one day, Steve said to uh, Frank, you know, I think I want to write books, and uh, instead of editing the quarterly fly fisher, so, uh, you know, I'll be leaving And so I thought, well, Salmon Trout Sea Letter was doing well, and I thought, well, Steve, you know, I think I'll leave too. And so for a year, I forgot about the Fly Fisher magazine for the Federation, and they selected a new publisher and and a new editor, and they still publish the magazine quarterly to this day. Mm -hmm. An organization, as conservation organization is concerned, has done extremely good work all across the United States, and even in other parts of the world. So I decided then, I, that with Salmon Trial Steelheader coming along so well, it was six issues a year in 77, that era, I got I actually bought a book. It was called Magazine Circulation and Magazine uh, Publication. And uh, I bought this book for like 40 bucks, thinking that, well, I'll kind of bone up on it to make Salmon Trial Steelheader better well, it turned out to be a, mag- a, a book that told you how to start a magazine, <laughs> the right way to start it. I had started a magazine without any advice other right. than from the staff of the Ramparts at uh, Central Catholic, this the high school newspaper. So I bought the bought the book. So it was spent some time reading it, and all of a sudden I thought, "Well, shoot! You know, I think I'll start a fly fishing magazine for the Western United States, a commercial magazine." Not to compete with the Fly Fisher because that was a a quarterly uh, organizational magazine, and there was only one other magazine at that time on fly fishing, and it was called Fly Fisherman, which had been started about a year after it started in the East, about a year after I started Salmon Trout Steelheader. Yeah, I think it started like 1968, and I started SCS in 67. So. I started uh, fly fishing in Tying Journal, and the first uh, editor was a fellow named Don Roberts, who is a was an excellent writer, and at the time he was also teaching in uh, Eastern Oregon, in John Day, so and also in Grand Ronde, and so I started the fly fishing magazine, and so it's I don't know like forty or fifty years. Down the line, and uh, Salmon Trout Steelheader is. I think we just celebrated his 60th uh, oh, birthday. Wow.
1: That's that's a that's amazing. That's a long time.
0: Yeah, it's a long time, and and actually during that period of time, well, it wasn't much after I started Salmon Trout Steelheader that I attended a Northwest Steelheaders Steelhead Fishing Clinic. They would ha- hold an annual clinic every year in December when uh, the winter steelhead would start coming back and they held one in the Mayflower Milk Auditorium down by the Ross Island Bridge and they invited me to have a table and to display salmon steel steelheader. So I was sitting at the table and watching the president of the organization, a fellow named Bill Luce, give a talk standing up on the stage and maybe 100, 150 people uh, listening to him avidly as see talked about uh, the different techniques for catching steelhead, uh, different gear fishing techniques with bait and spinner and like that. And the people were listening with such avid interest, as well as myself. I th- and this was, again, 1973, years after I'd started the Fishing Magazine, I knew people were interested in reading about steelhead. So I asked Bill at the end of his uh, talk if he could write a manuscript exactly uh, the way he had delivered it on the stage, and he said, "Frank, he was a longshoreman, North Portland." He said, Frank, uh, "Sure, I can do that." And he said, oh, "I'll give you a call when it's finished." So a couple months went by. I got in my Volkswagen, rode out to drove out to North Portland, and here Bill was at his home and invited me in for lunch. And he had this uh, handwritten, about maybe seventy, eighty page manuscript single spaced and they said here frank here's a manuscript on steelhead drift fishing (laughs) so so, uh, i hadn't you know told him that it should be typed or double spaced or anything like that so i had you know the handwritten copy and i had someone else transcribe it and in the meantime uh, i wrote a little section on how to fly fish for steelhead because by that time i'd been doing that for quite a while but I was uh, was not an expert in any means, but I could catch steelhead with a fly at least. But I wrote uh, a little section of the book, maybe 20 pages on fly fishing for steelhead, and built maybe 80 pages on gear fishing. And that book uh, just took off like a rocket hmm. because nothing like it existed on the Pacific Coast. There was only one book that I had really seen that was written previously and that was by a guy named enos bradner oh yeah who was the outdoor writer of the seattle times and well-known in seattle area huh.
1: what was the name but of i the had book?
0: not even what was the name of the book mm-hmm. you mean uh, the book we published yeah yeah the one we published was called steelhead drift fishing and fly fishing
1: okay and was that one of the was that the first book you published
0: yeah that was the first book we published and i actually went down to the printer and, uh, I, or no, that's a, that's a further along in the story. Yeah. And, and that was the first book that we yeah. published and it was, uh, locally printed.
1: Okay. And then, and so that's your first book. All in book. black and white. Okay. Oh, and it's all in black and white. And is so, so yeah. that's your first book. And now how many, when you look back now, uh, do you know how many books total have you've published uh, that are out there?
0: It's, uh, close to 300.
1: Three hundred books, and that covers all. Would you say an equal now, equal amount of fly fishing and gear fishing, or is it just a mix of of things?
0: The majority of the books were fly fishing and fly tying, and then right after that would be gear fishing, like Northwest gear fishing for steelhead and salmon. And after that would be some uh, guide guide type books. Oh, oh yeah, the guides, guide books. yeah, the
1: maps and the guides and stuff like that.
0: And, Do you? And, yeah. And then
1: there were probably 30
0: or 40 that were were river running and, uh, you know, how to handle drift boats and kind of, kind of technique boats or oh, yeah.
1: books. How did you go about, you know, with all those 300 books? I mean, how do you decide what, what book to publish next? I mean, through that whole process, did you just, you know, what was that process like? It, it,
0: it was just like uh, opening up a box of candies. <laughs> And somebody would uh, offer me one. And oh, there you it go. Would come in the mail, and there were a lot of school teachers that knew how to write and knew how to fish. Uh, a lot of professional people, doctors would write books, and lawyers would write books, and even had maybe a couple books written by women. But there were a lot of really uh, educated uh, people that liked to fish. And had interests in certain specialties of either fly fishing or deer fishing, and uh, got manuscripts from all over the United States, but mainly, of course, from the Pacific coast.
1: Nice, nice. I was just thinking, and, uh, you know, this is a. Uh... As we, you know, there's so much here. We're, you know, Frank, we're not going to be able to cover everything. You know, obviously, all oh, these books sure. and everything. But I, sure. I, I love hearing the story of the STS and FTG. I, I did want to hit on one thing that's a little bit random, just to see if the you remember this. We have, a we kind of have a connection with the Deschutes, and you know, I also wanted mm-hmm. to get into a little bit of what you would consider your home water, if you if you wanted to, you know, talk about that here in a bit. But do you remember? Oh, sure. Do you remember sure. a time maybe 20 years ago? Uh, you were up and you have a sled, right? Don't you have a sled you take up the Deschutes? It's like a wooden? A
0: wooden yeah, a blue one. Yeah, I called it Old Blue. It's, I bought it about 1980 when it was, uh, it was a salesman sample for LumaWeld. And uh, I had been on the Deschutes River Advisory Committee appointed by Governor Tia, I believe it was. Oh, yeah. And there were about 15 of us on the board representing the local railroad and the counties and the politicians and the police and the Indians. And yep. we were put together to suggest some legislative uh, proposals to pass in in the Oregon legislature to make, you know, the to protect the Deschutes, All in right. effect. So one of the things I wanted to do at that time was to take the jet boats off of the Deschutes, because uh, they were really noisy and there weren't that many of them at that time in the late 70s, early 80s, but they were coming on faster and faster. And, of course, they make a lot of noise. Well, I was just at that point, I was just a jet boat uh, fisherman. and uh, But then being on the committee, of course, there were people that had jet boats and spoke up for them, particularly guys on the lower river, And so we listened to them and decided that, well, maybe take the boats off of the upper river, the jet boats, above uh, Maupin. But uh, from uh, Shears Falls on downstream, have a jet boat season. So
2: Hmm.
0: I decided when the vote went against me to take them off of the entire river that I would buy a jet boat. So virtually the (laughs) next day. I went mm-hmm. out and bought uh, old blue and I've had that boat since uh, nineteen eighty. And uh
1: That's awesome. That's <laughs> so awesome. If you can't, I would if use you...
0: it on the, on the <laughs> I used it on the lower to shoes. Yeah, I didn't have anything against the jet boats except the noise, but yeah. If they weren't gonna take take them off the river then no reason not to get one. That's myself. it. I was gonna
1: say the, the old <laughs> the old if you can't beat them, join join 'em, them, right?
0: Yeah, that was it, you know, and it was uh, an 80-horse outboard, and uh, I I had to get a new engine when uh, that washout rapids was created by a uh, yep. a big storm yep. up around uh, Lockett. And, in fact, I was supposed to have been on the river the weekend that happened, just camped a little bit above it, but I missed it. Oh, but wow. uh, the next week when I went up to go back to my area yeah, I like to camp in, I came around the corner and all of a sudden I saw this look like a 10 or 12 foot um, wall of water Jeez. coming. And I knew there was no way, but I didn't think there was any way I could go up that. But the guy I was with said, yeah, Frank, you know, we can do it. We can do it. And there was a camera crew from one of the local stations. They were all eager to watch us attempt it. And I decided, no, no way. Yeah. So I went back to Portland and got, a little more powerful motor and, uh, the other motor was already about 10 or 15 years old. And, uh, but I decided not to attempt it the next time. And then after about one winter, a uh, uh, a pathway opened up yep. and since then it's been easy.
1: Yeah. It's easy now. That's the thing. Well, do you remember, uh, in that boat, um, Back in say maybe twenty years ago, coming up through uh, Gordon Ridge Rapids and coming up from the bottom and and uh, seeing an upside down raft and two people picking up their yeah mare.
0: exactly you, you remember, yeah you I did remember that and you helped. the raft the the raft was anchored to the bottom stuck It was the one I'm thinking of but it was there was one that was stuck in uh, the rapids Well, uh, the, 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 this one was before
1: that yeah 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 well, well this one just to, okay. just to refresh your memory um i, I was down there with uh, a friend of mine who when we were going through gordon ridge it was kind of windy that day and and we went through the top of gordon ridge in a raft and the wind hit us broadside and basically flipped us the first time i've ever flipped over and we had we had like five days of all of our gear you know a full trip and yeah the yeah. Did we get your oar back? Yeah, exactly. So I so I was swimming and you yeah. came and you you were pretty much the only person <laughs> on the river that day and you picked me and my buddy up and you helped us get our oars and picked up Sagar. You gave and you gave us a ride at the end by that time we had walked a mile down below Gordon but you gave us a that's ride and we went right. and we went through the lower rapid and you hit that first wave in the lower rapid and it felt like the entire yeah. river came over the boat and we just were I was like, "Wow, this is this is intense." So I that, Yeah, that's <laughs> that right. Was I us. do remember that. That was us
0: that's incredible I know. Incredible, because that was even that was even before uh, a couple of other yeah. <laughs> other uh, people I've helped up there that is amazing that's fantastic I know
1: it's, it's pretty cool <laughs> I can't
0: wait to tell my my wife and uh, sons, that one, that's and that's great. I've,
1: t- I've told that one for years because to this day, it's the only time I've ever dumped, uh, you know, on the Deschutes. And it was like it was kind of th- – and then, of course, you're yeah. – You know, and you have the old – I mean, uh, you have a run. The Amato Run is named after you up there below um, at the tail out there. Uh, I think that's somewhere in that area.
0: Yeah, exactly. Ab- above exactly. Bit, that, but, well, the the area from Lockets on yeah. up to about uh, – well, let's see. Where is the road that, that comes in? Just uh, oh, the, uh, off the yeah, off the uh, hill courts. Yeah, 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 off the hill. Yeah, from there, Cologne. Uh, yeah, up to about Max Canyon. All of that was really my favorite. Oh, just, okay, just yeah, yeah waters at all. That's what I consider, if anything, my home water, but. Yeah, what a wonderful river! That is cool.
1: Well, I wanted to touch base. You know, I mentioned your home water, and do you have? I mean, do you consider the Deschutes, or do you have another river that that you kind of consider your, you fish a lot nowadays?
0: Oh, there's little rivers that I fish, but yeah, and the Deschutes has is, is always been. Uh, in fact, I was supposed to fish it tomorrow, actually, with uh, an Indian guide. Oh, yeah, and uh, with with was, uh, uh, the, yeah. I can't think of his name, Little Leaf, yep. I think his yep. name is.
1: That's right, Little Leaf.
0: I was going to fish it with uh, friends who uh, who invited me, but uh, I've had a health problem and I can't go tomorrow, darn oh, it. Gotcha.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's too bad. Well, um, I mean, go, getting back to the book, so do you know yeah. which book is kind of your, your best-selling book of kind of over the years? Uh, uh, yeah, of, of, of
0: all times, you know, one of the best-selling books we ever had and probably about the best-selling "How to Fly Fish" book ever is one called Curtis Creek Manifesto. Oh yeah, and yeah, it was written a, a uh, fellow from San Francisco, originally from Utah, and uh, he was uh, kind of a ringer for Long John Silver, about six foot two, probably two hundred twenty-five pounds, and he'd uh, he'd devour a bottle or two of scotch before uh, having a. <laughs> uh, you know, a, a, a baked pork meal, and he was wow. an incredible guy. Yeah, and always wore black and had the black cowboy hat on, and uh, really a gruff guy. <laughs> and he wrote, I think, the masterpiece on how to fly fish called the Curtis Greek Manifesto, and it's uh, probably sold a couple hundred thousand copies, wow. just as a guess over the years. Yeah. And uh, when it first came out, it was so popular that some people were buying like even ten or twelve copies at a time to give to their friends. They had been trying to teach how to fly fish, <laughs> and it came out about nineteen seventy seven when fly fishing was just starting to catch on in a big way. And uh, but great book.
1: Yeah, that is. A good in one. fact,
0: the author in there did a little hilarious cartoon of me, and because the book is actually done as a kind of kind of looks like a. Black and white comic book. Yep, and uh, he had a little funny looking creature in it that he called the Clackamas River Cuckoo. And uh, I had a white patch of hair on my head, dark hair with a white patch, and so that's where he got the Clackamas River Cuckoo. And he kind of <laughs> <That's> <laughs> awesome. Made it made it after me. <laughs> I,
1: I didn't realize. I'll have to look at my copy and yeah, check that out. That's yeah, yeah, the Clackamas Cuckoo and.
0: He, of course, being from San Francisco in and, in uh, and, and Utah, he really wasn't familiar with the Clackamas River. But then, uh, Clackamas River and came to be well known. And of course, Clackacraft yep. boats had started up, and so that was another reason to know the Clackamas River. It didn't have you know terribly outstanding fishing, but it was a great river. Yeah, and so and a great
1: name. Right. Let's take a little break for a word from our sponsor. Since 1977, the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal has long been considered the angler's magazine, with original how-tos and technical articles written by the best trout and steelhead anglers in the West. FTJ is committed to sharing exceptionally written essays, fiction, poetry, and in-depth guides to fly fishing destinations. FTJ is one of my go-to magazines, and if you haven't checked it out recently, you can get started by calling 1-800-541-9498 or heading over to the web at ftjangler.com. Okay, back to the show. Do you guys uh, publish books from all around? I mean, it's more of a West, but you cover books all around the country, topics. and
0: Yeah, we've actually even produced a couple of books that were written by people uh, in uh, England, outside of the country. And they had, they were mainly fly tying books. And uh, at times it was probably for some of those writers in England easier almost to get their books published in the United States than in uh, England because the market was so much larger. And this was particularly true for people wanting to do Oh, dry fly books or nymph books or uh, specialty fly fishing or fly tying books.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, okay.
0: We we even did a book for an actual lord, and yeah, he he, he had a a lord title from uh, Scotland and uh, a fly tying book. But uh, he told us, unfortunately, the castle. And the property didn't, didn't go with the title anymore, <laughs> but, but but he was actually a lord, and he was, he was a nice lord. <laughs> yeah,
1: there you go. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. so so where do you think now? With um, I mean, it sounds like you're maybe your sons are, are kind of taking taking over the you know the operation there. I mean, where do you see mm-hmm. um, you know as you look at down in the future, you know, where do you see kind of salmon, trout, steelheader, motto publications going? Do, do you, do you see it sticking on the same path or, or, do we, we expect big changes?
0: Well, it's really hard to say because, uh, communications have changed so much and, uh, I, it's hard to say I think the only thing that is dependable is change yeah. and whether it's going to be tremendous change, a little change, it's hard to say, but yeah, Uh, newspapers have had a hard Mm -hmm. time, but, uh, generally specialty magazines have been able to, uh, do okay because of their kind of specialized topics. Yeah. So the future is hard to say what's going to happen. How have
1: you kept, how have you kept up with the change over the years? I mean, have there ever been a time with STS or the other magazine? I guess you have a third one now too, but were you maybe thought, you know, it wasn't going to make it. Have you ever had any times like that? Rough times?
0: Oh, we've thought about possibly changing the uh, publishing frequency and, and things of that nature, but as far as the publishing, no.
1: Yeah, it's all been going. And is, and does is STS mm-hmm. cover a little bit fly fishing? I mean, it's mostly kind of gear-related, right, or does it cover it, a little bit? It,
0: it, it's, it started out where it was probably 50-50, 50% fly and 50% gear fishing. And then when we started the fly fishing magazine oh. 10 years after SCS. Then we kind of separated. Yep. It then had less fly fishing in it. Yeah, that makes and sense. And so, yeah, now it's percent fly fishing, eighty percent gear fishing.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Well, do you have a um, you know a favorite other than your own stuff? Any other favorite books or uh, resources? You know, I guess we could think steelhead. It sounds like is kind of a species you, you've spent a lot of time on. Well, I yeah,
0: yeah, I've always been a. Uh, Reader, and so there are, are some specialty magazines on seal that I can't think of any of their names offhand, yeah. but they're published like maybe a couple times a year, yep. and uh, those are kind of fun to read. They don't really teach you much about how to fish for them, but but they have the philosophy, and they have incredible photography and artwork, and That's right. so I I enjoy looking at those books occasionally, but yeah. Uh, Otherwise, what I really like to do is to personally fish as much as I can. That's right.
1: That's, <laughs> personally. What, that's what it sounds yeah. like. Yeah, you yeah. like to go off and fish a lot just on your own, right? You head out to the, your to your special place yeah, and just and just do it. I do and I
0: like to use these little one man rubber boats okay. because uh, even on a crowded weekend, you can. Find a river or a stream like the Malala or the yep. parts of the Clackamas or East Lewis or Washugal, and you can put that little boat in just three, four miles and uh, walk back up to your car and yep. maybe see hardly anybody and right. uh, get some good fishing in and it's just uh, they're they're wonderful. and for a guy like me who's now seventy seven, uh, I can still wade and be inside the little boat and Yep. swing a fly, or if the water's a little too high, swing a wobbler or or a spinner or drift a uh, a float in a jig. Yep. And so the fishing now, I, I probably do a little less of it, but I'm more efficient and I enjoy it as much as ever. Plus, there's nothing like sitting in one of these one-man boats. It's like fishing in in, in a um, in a sofa <laughs> and it's just fantastic as long as you dress warm
1: yeah is the boat like do you know a name of the boat is this like one of the water masters or one of those small boats
0: yeah
1: yeah like a water master
0: yeah. i think there may be a, a couple only a couple things out there little inflatable boats that are that small that are good but yeah they make one and i think there's an outfit and uh Utah I can't figure their name, but they yeah. make one
1: too. Yeah, I know that, yeah. Yeah. Oh cool. I'll put a link to some in the show notes mm-hmm. to some of the stuff we're talking about here to make sure so people can connect with uh, the resources. Sure. What um, sure. do you have a, a project, you know of all the years here now, you're talking about sixty years, anything you're you're most proud of about a motto publication stuff you've done over the years?
0: Well, what I'm most proud about is uh probably uh helping to uh kind of save the uh, Deschutes Mm -hmm. to preserving it. And uh, back in, I guess it was like the late 70s, early 80s, when the Rajneesh and his followers were very uh, popular and had a lot of money in the John Day River, just one river system away from the Deschutes, like maybe 40 air miles. Uh, The lower 12 miles of the Deschutes came out for sale by the, people that lived in California that had bought the property thinking that dams would be built there and that they would have a financial bonanza, but the dams were never built in that lower 12 miles. And so they put the property up for sale for, I I think 5,000 acres for a couple million dollars. And uh, had I had a couple million dollars, I probably would have bought it myself, but, (laughs) What happened essentially was that I feared that the Rajneesh might buy it or somebody else because 5,000 acres and 12 miles of uh, river, almost 24 miles of river bank, was kind of unbelievable, especially for the river that I think is the best one in the United States. So I immediately uh, called up the Northwest Steelheaders, a guy named Chuck Ross, who's executive director, and I said, Chuck. And you get a uh, meeting with uh, Governor Atia because uh, something's come up and someone has proposed to make a private fishing club on the lower 12 miles of the river and for $2,000 a share or something like that, or mm. maybe 10000 a share, you could buy in on it. The guy was going to try and sell 200 shares for first 200 people at I think 10000 a share or something like that and so uh i thought you know the state's got to buy this and uh and uh you know i can't as an individual i can't put together an organization to try to buy it so i thought well if the steelheaders say it's a good idea or they want to have a meeting yeah maybe we can get it so yeah in no time i was sitting at, a, at the capitol in Vicatia's office telling them what we've just discussed, the fact that the state's got to buy this property. Otherwise, it's going to fall into private hands. And the person named Doug Robertson, who would come to me with kind of a red herring to get this all started, he asked me if I would put a free one-third page ad in Sam and Charles letter and also our fly fishing magazine advertising these uh, $10,000 Lots, you might say, of ten thousand dollar shares in the Deschutes. You know, I looked at Doug and I said, "You know, is this for real?" He really, and he kind of was a poker player almost. And he said, "Well, Frank, you know, that's kind of what I want. I want to do." And he wanted me to run the ads for free, knowing I think that I would immediately, you know, run out looking for help, which I did, <laughs> and so. I explained this to the governor with uh, Doug Robertson sitting at my side as a purchaser, potential purchaser for the private club, and also with Chuck Voss, executive director of the Northwest Steelheaders, and then, of course, Vic Tia. Well, the Tia had they had a rosy look in his eye. It's a kind of a watery look in his eyes. He got up out of his chair, big chair, uh, lit a cigarette, started walking around the room saying how much he loved the Deschutes and how he'd been there as a kid, too. And and then he said, well, I'll look into see what maybe we can do through the state parks. So he, then we were, as we were walking out the door, he said, oh, and in the meantime, Doug, <clears throat> he said, oh, in the meantime, Doug, don't sell that last share because I might want to buy it. So <laughs> he, he was a clever guy, the go. governor, <laughs> and so, so the governor talked to. Uh, it's was the head of state parks. I can't think of his name now. And uh-huh. and uh, state parks thought, uh, wow, yeah, you know, this is a great opportunity to bring uh, kind of a patrimony into the uh, the, the state, yeah. for the fishermen and the people that love the deschutes. So they got uh, a guy named Alan Kelly who had been on the game commission and uh, was a, a good uh, go-getter. They, they made him kind of the chairman of the DeSuit's, uh Committee to raise the money the $2 million to buy it. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I, I essentially initiated, the, uh, huh. initiated all that. I didn't do a lot of the work because it was like lighting a match to a haystack, it went up like crazy sure. and it just caught on fire and and everybody wanted to contribute and work towards it. And so that's my That's right. I, you know, I proudest accomplishment cool. I just happened to have a, the magazine that yeah. made it all helped, possible to get it. the word out.
1: And what year was that when it when it started, when it went through or when it started there? It's probably like around eighty two, yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah I think I remember that, weren't uh, there? I think people even made some you know, there were stickers and little uh, emblems It was like yeah, Love uh, exactly. Love the Deschutes or something like that, right? I love the Deschutes and, and, and a, all sorts of things. And a couple p- of years yeah. yeah, and a
0: couple of years before that, when I was on the Deschutes advisor Advisory Committee, I was uh, responsible for getting the boaters' uh pass. You know, the boaters' fee that we pay now that everybody yep. pays. I was responsible for seeing that that got passed as well,
2: yeah
0: that was one of the one of the advisory things that came out of the shoe River Advisory committee that Atia put together in, and, and so uh I got a call from the state parks fellow and he said, "You know Frank, a lot of this other legislation we've passed, but we with the uh, canoers and the people that uh, have soft boats, they don't want to pay a fee to use the right. river and the bill had passed, I think it was it had passed either in the Senate or in the House of Representatives. It was held up by one committee and one member of that committee, who was the chairman of the committee and the Senate, Oregon Senate. And so he called me up and said, You know, Frank, is there any way that you could help us to change this individual from to put some pressure on it? And I said, Well, who is he? And so I got his name and it was Senator So and So from from uh, down on Marshfield area, and so I called Chuck Voss and I said, "You know, can the steelheaders help out here? We've got this guy, one guy, who's holding up this uh, this this way of preserving the lower the by having some money to manage it for toilets and all that, or a river use fee." And so uh, Chuck Voss said, "Well, there's a chapter of the Northwest Steelheaders in in." you know, south or north Bend and marshfield that area Northwest our chapter and every year they have the chairman of the committee the person who was saying no to this increase and I'll have them contact him so they contacted him and changed his mind and uh, changed the vote and it went through wow and and all and since that time that uh Decision and in, in that success in the legislature is raised, I would guess anywhere from uh, five to ten million dollars or more for purchase of more property along these routes, <laughs> and part of that money was also used to help initiate the fund to buy the twelve miles of the you know of the lower river as well. There you go. So those are the two things that I was fortunate to be involved in in you know from their conception.
1: Yeah. Yeah, those are huge. I, that's, yeah, I mean, those are legacy things that people probably don't even think about now that are new to it, but, yeah, that's – you were part of it. And the, there was yeah. a third
0: there, yeah. there was a third thing that predated all of this concerning the Deschutes. The Army Corps of Engineer or, or the uh, Bureau of Land Management from Penelta, from Prineville wanted to make a kind of a, a paved road or at least an open road without any locked gates. From the dells all the way up to uh, Warm Springs uh, Bridge, a hundred miles, open up that road to all forms of transportation, and uh, so they had they published the hundred-page uh, study of it with photographs and river mile by river mile, to, you know whether Indians owned that part or whether it was privately owned or whether it was owned by a club, and I took that whole report. And published almost all of the uh, segments mile by mile in a copy of *Salmon Trout together. Oh, cool! And I put a, a cover of Sam, uh, of the Deschutes. I made a cover uh, for the, uh, of the Deschutes I put a big cross through it and some kind of a headline saying, "You know, the Deschutes is going to be forever trade. You know, yeah. it's going to be forever changed if this goes through." Well. All you know, maybe 20,000 readers of Salmon Trousty Letter in Oregon got a chance to see it on the newsstands and wherever else, and finally the word got into the press, and uh, then people talked to uh, Governor McCall,
2: uh-huh. and
0: Governor McCall, Tom McCall, decided that he would come to the public hearing at the Bonneville Power Administration in Portland. There must have been... Five hundred people. Wow. That, that uh, auditorium was absolutely jam packed with people. This was probably in the, in the late seventies, okay, and and uh, it was just standing room only. And and up on on the the uh, deck or or, or, or the stays with Tom McCall were the couple of guys from the uh, Bureau of Land Management office in Pineville who had prepared and spent years putting this study together, and they thought it was what everybody wanted
2: Uh because
0: uh, some of the people that wanted it were in the Dells. The guys at the Uh Dells wanted to be able to get on the Deschutes and just drive up it on a road alongside it and open it up. And there were other people that wanted to drive along it too, but not many because the overwhelming... Amount of people wanted to preserve the the shoots in as wild a setting as possible, yeah. with as few roads and, and and vehicles and campers along it. So Tom McCall gave a talk that was unbelievable—a speech, you know, mm-hmm. decrying how it would destroy the canyon of the shoots if this program went through. He got like a five-minute yes. standing ovation by everybody there. And it was the most dramatic single uh, conservation event I've ever experienced. Yes. And and it was killed. And, and no one has ever squeaked about it ever since. No,
1: no. And And so basically they, they were proposing so, to build a road from the, essentially on the east side where the railroad line used to be all the way up to Deschutes.
0: Exactly. The, yeah. the railroad grid would be the base. And, and yeah. they would take down... The lock gates at the lower part of the river. They would also open up the lock gates at uh, the Deschutes Club. Yeah, you know, and, and I'm not crazy about lock gates, no. but on the other hand, you have to have, you take some gems that we've got to protect. And oh, if yeah. a person can't ride a bicycle out there, can't ride a horse, or or he breaks his leg and can't walk along it. I mean, yep. you can't just open everything up.
1: No, no. And, and it's huge because, you know, that river I floated or walked or by I I've, I've been on every foot of that river and you know, when you get down to Max Canyon, yes. when you get down to Max Canyon and and again, yes. I I don't have a sled, so I I still have a little bit. I'm like, you know, I've got the drift boat, but you know, when you put that drift boat uh-huh. in and you just realize, you know what? You got 25 miles and the only thing you're you're not going to see any cars you know and it just it's, it's wonderful it's, isn't it yeah it's just a, it's a world because it would be totally different yeah. if you if you knew there would be cars and things so yeah that's that's pretty amazing frank i didn't yeah, know that anytime, story
0: yeah <laughs> i have had an intimate relationship with it, the shoots and uh, i just uh, i love it above all other rivers there's so many times i found myself fishing and maybe uh you know, Montana or Alaska or even South America and thinking to myself, why in the hell am I not fishing in the shoots?
1: Yeah. That's right. <laughs> it's just it's just a magic place. It is. It is. I was gonna ask you that kind of, you know, what what on your list of uh places around the world do you do you have, you know, that you'd still like to get to? Is it is it one of those things where you don't really even think about that too much anymore?
0: Well, one of the places I always wanted to get to was uh actually South America to Chile yeah. and, uh, just to see what fishing was like down there. And I got invited by Pan Am to go down there. Well, back in the mid fifties when Pinochet was still, uh, the dictator of, of uh, Chile. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we went down and we fished what's called the lakes region down around Port de Mont, maybe 500 mm-hmm. miles South of Santiago. And then I got an opportunity to fish, uh, on Tierra del Fuego for the sea run no brown trout that come up from Argentina. Yep. And uh, that I just absolutely love because unlike Alaska, you didn't have to worry about bears or any animals. Right. <laughs> and, and you could, you know, and, and at that time, there weren't any people going down there, hardly other than the people that raised sheep, the, <laughs> the Sanceros. Yep. And uh, there was nothing worse than uh, nothing that, no snakes. There were some wild puma, and uh, but nothing uh, dangerous about it. The only thing was, you know, a lot of wind, yeah. but that was fine because anyway, the good fish that the shoots could fish pretty much any place. Oh yeah. Uh, when it comes to wind, right. and so I love that. That uh, that's a place that uh, I, I returned to for many years actually
1: there you go yeah that's a that's a place definitely on my bucket list i want to get down to hopefully in the next couple years what well frank we're we're getting about there getting ready to wrap this up i just had a few more questions for you uh, if you have a little time yeah Um, so out of all this stuff you know we talked about obviously all the books and you know and the magazines and and the conservation i mean you know to this day, is there anything about fly fishing and, and specifically that gets you excited or, you know, has anything changed over the years, you know, just with fishing in general? Do you, you know, what gets you fired up these days?
0: Well, the sad thing is uh, I think the global warming that is uh, leading to change in our anatomous fisheries. I think that the oceans seem to be losing their uh, fertility and there's not as many herring, and uh, just things for steelhead the salmon to eat in the ocean. And that scares the hell out of me. And I won't, you know, I'm 77. I won't live long enough to see much of a turnaround if one occurs.
2: Right.
0: But on the other hand, there are still wonderful, incredible fishing experiences. But people have to think in terms of, of how great it is to hook one fish or to see a fish. Yep. Or even not to hook a fish, but to maybe see an otter or to just just getting out on the stream and enjoying where you are with the hope of hooking <clears throat> one of those miracle fish. It's just, uh, you know, steelhead and salmon and trout. They're just miraculous and beautiful. They mm-hmm. take us to the most beautiful parts of the world. And, uh, you know just try to be as good as we can.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, as you were talking there, I was kind of thinking about Hague Brown again. You mentioned him at the start of the, at the start of the show. I mean, when you think about his time that he was there, do do you, do you see, I mean, obviously he talked about some of the conservation issues back then as well. Um, Do you, do you remember, you know, and some, does anything stick out from what you read and learned from him over the years?
0: Well, I think that, uh, uh, he 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 kind of maintained that fishing was an excuse to be either in a river or close by yep. a river, you know, and and feeling the water curl around his leg and the push of the currents, you know, against his waders and you know and the birds and everything. Like I, I to give you a crazy example. I was fishing the Wainichi River in Southwest Washington two weeks ago, and I was wife, for chum salmon and I hooked the chum and uh, I was swinging the fly and off the chum goes and they're powerful fish and it was a bright fish and uh, my friend he was down there trying getting ready to net it about maybe 100 150 feet below me because it was in a classic run and the chum just kept going and finally I couldn't understand why I couldn't work him in and my friend yells up to me he says Frank Frank there's an otter otter trying to steal your salmon. Uh-huh. Yep. And so uh, then I looked, and I could see the otter's back where the salmon was. <laughs> and the uh, the friend went to net the fish, and I think he was trying to net the otter, too, but the otter let go of the fish. So we I played the fish over and, you know, hurried up, got down there to watch the fish before it was released. And uh, sure enough, you could see the puncture marks. Yeah on the fish where the otter had grabbed onto it. But, you know, those are the kind of things that that's the first time in my life that I'd ever had that's that kind cool. of experience. But
1: yeah. anytime you're on the river, something uh, yep.
0: new and memorable is just bound
1: to happen. That's true. No, that's totally true. Well, I, I just, uh, yeah, I had a couple of, uh, I always ask a couple of questions on yeah. k- kind of the top two flies, top two tips, top two resources. Sure. And I guess we're kind of thinking about steelhead here, talking about the Deschutes. Would you have a couple of uh, flies, you know, if you're out there swinging flies that you, you kind of always go to?
0: Well, to, to start, you know, I, even in, in any river that I'm fly fishing, if the water's too high, I happily switch over to using a wobbler, and yeah. I'll take the wobbler and use a pretty small hook on it and uh use maybe uh well any kind of a wobbler yeah. anything from a steely to yeah, right. uh, a pixie
1: like a silver and i st- love silver steely just, or something. you know yeah for mm-hmm,
0: exactly and for either silvers or for uh or cohos and for steelhead, I love to just cast it out and let it swing around and then take a step and cast, step, cast, step, cast. Fish is exactly the way you would a wet fly. Uh, okay. And I like to use a small barbless hook and and a hook that's really got a weak wire. One that if you hook like a Chinook or you hook a big fish, so if you just pull on the line, you can bend the wire. Oh, wow. So the barbell hook just comes out. And you don't have to, you know, fight the fish and possibly hurt it. Uh, and you, you, it, it, it doesn't cost you anything for, uh, it cuts your wobbler costs in half. Because oh, right. <laughs> it's a soft wire hook. Yeah. And, you know, and, and so that's what I do. And a lot of times I'll even, if there are a lot of salmon around, I'll just use a software hook and just cut off the hook and just uh, to have the satisfaction of just knowing that I would have hooked that fish, but I felt the bump. and I felt the grab and maybe he swam three feet with it in his mouth, but he spit it out. Yep. So that, that works out too. Instead of catching fish after fish after fish, you know, on those rare, rare occasions when you come across a lot of fish.
1: Yeah. No, so
0: I like to give the fish every chance, you know, that I can.
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah.
0: Now, as far as as far as the, you know the technique, swinging yep. the wobbler is great. On an eddy, I'll do the same thing, but I'll use a spinner oftentimes, and uh, again with a weak hook and a barbless hook, and maybe even a partially bent open hook, so that if because coho have a tendency to want to take wobblers and spinners deep, and so I try to do as little damage as possible to them because, uh, all the wild ones we release and, uh, same way with the steelhead. So, so doing as little damage as possible to the fish
2: mm-hmm.
0: fly fishing wise for the fly that I've used on the Deschutes all this time, I call it, uh, the night dancer. Yep. And essentially it's a kind of a black body with a silver ribbing and, uh, a, a, a uh, kind of a purple throat or, or purple mm-hmm. blue. Uh, it varies, you know, a little red tail. And, yep. uh, that fly is, uh, it's a great uh, lots of fish for me yeah. in different sizes. Yeah. Yeah. And the funny thing is I got the idea for it. I was talking to, uh, oh that great, uh, guide on the Clackamas, Bob Tillman. Oh, Tillman. Yeah. And, yeah. And I said, you know, Bob, I said, uh, uh, I noticed, you know. A lot of times when I'm fishing the shoots, the, the fish seem to be away from the channel that the jet boats are using. You know, they're off to the side. And Bob said, "Yeah, you know, that's because they uh, hate the hate that sound of the jet boat, and it scares them over." Which, of course, I knew anyway. And 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 of course, Bob always has a mercury on his uh, jet boat, and blue and black are the colors. And so. Bob kinda of theorized that uh, you know, if you did a fly that had some blue and black in it, the fish might attack it just because of uh, it looked like a like a Mercury. <laughs> <laughs> there you and, go. and and so I uh, but you know, that's kidding, but it's also kinda of half serious. Yeah. And and so that became a favorite fly. For yeah. trout I like a fly called the Renegade on the Deschutes. and The renegade was traditionally a dry fly meant to be probably fished in like a 14 or 12 or 10. But I started in the late 50s, I started tying a renegade that was on a size six hook. It was almost the size of a golf ball. And I would uh, cast it and just uh, fish it right under the surface so I could see the fly and I would pump it like it was like a spider had all of this kind of webby action. And that to this day is still uh, it's still oh. one of my favorite flies for Trout on the shoots.
1: There you go. All right. The Renegade. And and what about for a resource? Do you have a good, if you had to pick one of your books or something out there that you have for steelhead? It, is, does anything come to mind?
0: Well, you know, we, we've done so many steelhead books yeah. and uh, n- nothing offhand, you know, comes yeah. to mind. But any book that we've ever done on steelhead, you know, yep. works. You got and plenty. Yeah, there's there's so yeah. many. Uh, the, the techniques are so similar that uh, if you get one good book, you're you're okay. You're on your way.
1: You're good to go. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I was just yeah. I was just thinking I'm going to see really quick uh, see what pops up when I put in uh, Frank Amato steelhead mm-hmm. books here. I'm just curious to see. There's so many. I'm trying to think of one, too, that's not really coming off the top of my head. Well, you know what came up here, and this is something I was going to ask you about, but the Wild Steelheader Coalition. Maybe we can kind of kind of wrap it up here. You noted some of the conservation stuff, but I think you were recently awarded. Um, let's see. Was this recently? This might have been a little, a little ways back. Well, it was back.
0: probably about 10 years ago. The, the Wild Steelhead Coalition gave me a... Uh, beautiful carved, uh, steelhead with, uh, my name on it and, right. a plaque. and, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, love that fish and I really appreciate, appreciate it.
1: There you go. And, and they have done
0: so much good work.
1: And that was for the work. Yeah. All this, the, some of the stuff you noted and definitely, uh, yeah, I mean,
0: yeah, your father, you know, and all that he's done and all of his friends yeah. and my God, you know, there has been a tremendous amount of, uh, now with Northwest Dealers and CCA and, yep. and the Native Fish Society and uh, the Federation and Trout Unlimited, a lot. we have plenty of uh, organizations. And if people want to contribute their time or a little bit of their money towards them, that's, uh, this is it's needed more now than ever.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you, Frank. No, I appreciate that. I think you're right. There's a... Uh... There's definitely still lots of struggles, but as long as we have some people fighting out there, we we should hopefully be able to get there. Might might take some time, you know. That that's the thing I joke about with my dad. You know, right. I tell, I tell him, you know, if it took us a uh, hundred or two hundred years to get this point, it, it's not gonna it's not gonna be that quick to get back to the you know to more of the recovery mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, it might not be in your lifetime, or maybe even not in my lifetime. But I mean, we can still keep keep focusing on and teaching the kids, right?
0: Yeah, and with uh, everything is really dependent upon climate. If we have good climate and rich uh, production in the ocean, we're going to be inundated with fish, and it's all up to the climate.
1: That's it. That's it. All right, well, Frank, one uh, quick one here. Uh, So your go-to boat, if you had to pick between a jet sled, a drift boat, and your little one-man boat, if you could only pick one, what would it be?
0: At my age and the condition I'm in now, would be the little little boat, the little little rubber boat, the one man boat. Yeah, because with it I can wade safely. I don't have to worry about you know falling in because I'm surrounded already by you know buoyant material. I can sit while I do my fishing. I should write a book on how to sit and fish Uh because I do all my fly fishing for winter steelhead sitting in that boat. Yeah, because you can, you know, go down a
1: uh,
0: a river like the the Kilchis or the Trask or, uh, you know, any of the coastal streams, the lower parts of the coastal streams. And you just put your feet down and you stop the boat and you start swinging the fly. And uh, it's just fantastic. And you don't need to be using one of these 13 foot um, rods, just a 12 foot switch rod. Uh, works just great.
1: Oh yeah, switch rod. Okay, and and if you were on the Deschutes, mm-hmm. that boat maybe would be. I occasionally and see the, the float Deschutes. tubers, yeah, that wouldn't be the same. Would that be a Would that be okay to use out there in the lower river? You know,
0: I've never used it. I've never used it on the Deschutes, yeah. but yeah. people, you know, have fished out of uh, oh uh, the float tubes. Yeah, the float tubes. Using them for yeah, u- using them for. Uh, of support yeah. in higher water, and so I uh, think the same thing would be true of this other little boat. But, but particularly for the Lower River, where they use the float tubes, that, that's probably the best technique—the float tube—the way they use them now. I know. But for rivers uh, in the winter time that are that you're, you're fishing in colder water, you can just you know I always wear a ballakaleva, and that and, and uh, a hat with uh, ear flaps oh, yeah. and heavy uh, undergarments. And I feel like uh, it's, it's just
1: wonderful. I know. I hear you. And and then what was that uh, what? Vo- that Volkswagen car in 1967? Was that a bug or was that a Volkswagen van?
0: It was a bug. And, and I used to pull a wood drift boat <laughs> built Sweet. by boat specialties in Salem. It was a 13-footer, a little boat. Yeah, I used to pull it uh, behind the Volkswagen all the way to the Kalama and pulled it to the Molala. There, the <laughs> there you go. Clackamas. There you go. In 1976, I got an international scout that yep. could pull my drift boat, and I was able to then make it to the Deschutes oh, cool. with the drift boat.
1: Cool. I'll have to, yeah, I'll to try to find a photo of that old uh, that old drift boat. That's, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, thank you, and and tell your dad hi for sure. I will, Frank. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. Thanks for uh, doing oh, okay. do, doing all the good work, and I'll, I'll let you know when this show comes out, and I'll give you a heads up, and we'll uh, we'll I'll share it with you. And I, I think it's going to be good. So Wonderful. I'm looking forward to it. Well thank you, Dave. All right, thanks. Thank See you. ya. Okay, bye. Yeah, bye bye. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes, all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com dot com slash one one three go to the resources page at wetflyswing.com slash resources and find out what products are recommended by our guests on this podcast. If you purchase uh, any of uh, the products through those links, uh, the podcast here will get a small commission, uh, and it's a great way to support the show at no extra cost to you. We are getting closer to Alaska. If you want to check out uh, what we have going and get some more information on heading up with me, to one of the great places uh that we have go to wetflyswing.com slash ak thank you uh, i want to let you know i appreciate you i appreciate the support and uh, if you are brand new to the podcast you should uh, send me an email at dave at wetflyswing.com or just mention at wetfly Swing on any of the social media platforms out there um, including maybe even pinterest i haven't uh, dug into that yet i guess if you uh If you are into Pinterest, maybe let me know on social. Thanks again for signing by to check out the show today. I'm looking forward to catching up with you soon. and hope to maybe see you online or maybe on that Alaskan river trip. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.